welcome to Songs of Praise from 3ABN Australia Radio.
was lost in a world of sin. Darkness was all that I knew. Then Jesus found me and new light shone in, the light of his marvelous truth. Daily I searched for his will in my life through study of his holy word. Down on my knees I surrendered in prayer, seeking just how I could serve. And now
This is Songs of Praise, brought to you by 3ABN Australia Radio.
deserve to come to you, Lord, with my troubles and selfish pleas. But I know I have failed you in so many ways, but never have you failed to meet all my
find rest for my weary soul. And because I'm so unworthy, I'd love you even more. I'm undeserving of your love, but love me, listening to Songs of Praise.
Every day they pass me by. I can see it in their eyes. Empty people filled with care, headed who knows where. On they go through. Private pain, living fear to fear. Laughter hides their silent cries. Only Jesus hears. People need the Give our lives for 
You're listening to 3ABN Australia Radio's Songs of Praise. Right and 
Songs of Praise, a production of 3ABN Australia Radio. Welcome to 3ABN Australia Radio's book reading program. The book Christ's Object Lessons, written by Ellen White, presents the parables of Jesus in a fresh light, showing their application to Christian living today. In this devotional classic, Ellen White explores the depths of the best-loved teachings of Jesus, offering a deeply spiritual understanding of the parables of Christ as they apply to our lives today. You'll enjoy the practical applications in a way that touches your heart. Listen now as Clive Nash reads. Continuing the chapter, Go into the highways and hedges. Let the Lord's messengers bear this in mind. To the shepherds of the flock the teachers divinely appointed, it should come as a word to be heeded. Those who belong to the higher ranks of society are to be sought out with tender affection and brotherly regard. Men in business life, in high positions of trust, men with large inventive faculties and scientific insight, men of genius, teachers of the gospel whose minds have not been called to the special truths for this time, These should be the first to hear the call. To them, the invitation must be given. There is a work to be done for the wealthy. They need to be awakened to their responsibility as those entrusted with the gifts of heaven. They need to be reminded that they must give an account to him who shall judge the living and the dead. The wealthy man needs your labor in the love and fear of God. Too often he trusts in his riches and feels not his danger. The eyes of his mind need to be attracted to things of enduring value. He needs to recognize the authority of true goodness which says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Matthew 11 verses 28 to 30. Those who stand high in the world for their education, wealth or calling are seldom addressed personally in regard to the interests of the soul. Many Christian workers hesitate to approach these classes, but this should not be. If a man were drowning, he would not stand by and see him perish because he was a lawyer, a merchant 
or a judge. If we saw persons rushing over a precipice, we would not hesitate to urge them back whatever might be their position or calling. Neither should we hesitate to warn men of the peril of the soul. None should be neglected because of their apparent devotion to worldly things. Many in high social positions are heart-sore and sick of vanity. They are longing for a peace which they have not. In the very highest ranks of society are those who are hungering and thirsting for salvation. Many would receive help if the Lord's workers would approach them personally with a kind manner, a heart made tender by the love of Christ. The success of the gospel message does not depend upon learned speeches, eloquent testimonies or deep arguments. It depends upon the simplicity of the message and its adaptation to the souls that are hungering for the bread of life. What shall I do to be saved? This is the want of the soul. Thousands can be reached in the most simple and humble way. The most intellectual, those who are looked upon as the world's most gifted men and women, are often refreshed by the simple words of one who loves God and who can speak of that love as naturally as the worldling speaks of the things that interest him most deeply. Often the words well prepared and studied have but little influence, but the true honest expression of a son or daughter of God, spoken in natural simplicity, has power to unbolt the door to hearts that have long been closed against Christ and his love. Let the worker for Christ remember that he is not to labour in his own strength, let him lay hold of the throne of God with faith in his power to save. Let him wrestle with God in prayer, and then work with all the facilities God has given him. The Holy Spirit is provided as his efficiency. Ministering angels will be by his side to impress hearts. If the leaders and teachers at Jerusalem had received the truth Christ brought, what a missionary center their city would have been. Backslidden Israel would have been converted. A vast army would have been gathered for the Lord. And how rapidly they could have carried the gospel to all parts of the world. So now, if men of influence and large capacity for usefulness could be won for Christ, then through them what a work could be accomplished in lifting up the falling, gathering in the outcasts, and spreading far and wide the tidings of salvation. Rapidly the invitation might be given and the guests be gathered for the Lord's table. But we are not to think only of great and gifted men to the neglect of the poorer classes. Christ instructs his messengers to go also to those in the byways and hedges, to the poor and lowly of the earth, in the courts and lanes of the great cities, in the lonely byways of the country, our families and individuals perfect strangers in a strange land, who are without church relations and who in their loneliness come to feel that God has forgotten them. They do not understand what they must do to be saved. Many are sunken in sin. Many are in distress. They are pressed with suffering, want, unbelief, despondency. Disease of every type afflicts them both in body and in soul. They long to find a solace for their troubles, and Satan tempts them to seek it in lusts and pleasures that lead to ruin and death. He is offering them the apples of Sodom that will turn to ashes upon their lips. They are spending their money for that which is not bread, 
and their labor for that which satisfieth not. In these suffering ones we are to see those whom Christ came to save. His invitation to them is, Ho, every one that thirsteth, come ye to the waters, and he that hath no money, come ye, buy and eat, yea, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Hearken diligently unto me, and eat ye that which is good, and let your soul delight itself in fatness. Incline your ear and come unto me, hear, and your soul shall live. Isaiah 55 verses 1 to 3. God has given a special command that we should regard the stranger, the outcast, and the poor souls who are weak in moral power. Many who appear wholly indifferent to religious things are in heart longing for rest and peace. Although they may be sunk into the very depths of sin, there is a possibility of saving them. Christ's servants are to follow his example. As he went from place to place, he comforted the suffering and healed the sick. Then he placed before them the great truths in regard to his kingdom. This is the work of his followers. As you relieve the sufferings of the body, you will find ways for ministering to the wants of the soul. You can point to the uplifted Saviour and tell of the love of the great physician who alone has power to restore. Tell the poor desponding ones who have gone astray that they need not despair. Though they have erred and have not been building a right character, God has joy to restore them, even the joy of his salvation. He delights to take apparently hopeless material, those through whom Satan has worked, and make them the subjects of his grace. He rejoices to deliver them from the wrath which is to fall upon the disobedient. Tell them there is healing, cleansing for every soul. There is a place for them at the Lord's table. He is waiting to bid them welcome. Those who go into the byways and hedges will find others of a widely different character who need their ministry. There are those who are living up to all the light they have and are serving God the best they know how. But they realize that there is a great work to be done for themselves and for those about them. They are longing for an increased knowledge of God, but they have only begun to see the glimmering of greater light. They are praying with tears that God will send them the blessing which by faith they discern afar off. In the midst of the wickedness of the great cities, many of these souls are to be found. Many of them are in very humble circumstances, and because of this they are unnoticed by the world. There are many of whom ministers and churches know nothing, but in lowly, miserable places they are the Lord's witnesses. They may have had little light and few opportunities for Christian training, but in the midst of nakedness, hunger and cold, they are seeking to minister to others. Let the stewards of the manifold grace of God seek out these souls, visit their homes, and through the power of the Holy Spirit minister to their needs. Study the Bible with them and pray with them with that simplicity which the Holy Spirit inspires. Christ will give his servants a message that will be as the bread of heaven to the soul. The precious blessing will be carried from heart to heart, from family to family. The command given in the parable to compel them to come in has often been misinterpreted. It has been regarded as teaching that we should force men to receive the gospel. But it denotes rather the urgency of the invitation and the effectiveness of the inducements presented. 
the gospel never employs force in bringing men to Christ. Its message is, Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters. Isaiah 55, verse 1. The Spirit and the Bride say, Come, and whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. Revelation 22, verse 17. The power of God's love and grace constrains us to come. The Saviour says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. Revelation 3, verse 20. He is not repulsed by scorn or turned aside by threatening, but continually seeks the lost ones, saying, How shall I give thee up? Hosea 11, verse 8. Although his love is driven back by the stubborn heart, he returns to plead with greater force, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. The winning power of his love compels souls to come in. And to Christ they say, Thy gentleness hath made me great. Psalm 18, verse 35. Christ will impart to his messengers the same yearning love that he himself has in seeking for the lost. We are not merely to say, Come. There are those who hear the call, but their ears are too dull to take in its meaning. Their eyes are too blind to see anything good in store for them. Many realize their great degradation. They say, I am not fit to be helped. Leave me alone. But the workers must not desist. In tender, pitying love, lay hold of the discouraged and helpless ones. Give them your courage, your hope, your strength. By kindness, compel them to come. Of some have compassion, making a difference, and others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire. Jude 22 and 23. If the servants of God will walk with him in faith, he will give power to their message. They will be enabled to present his love and the danger of rejecting the grace of God that men will be constrained to accept the gospel. Christ will perform miracles if men will but do their God-given part. In human hearts today, as great a transformation may be wrought as has ever been wrought in generations past. John Bunyan was redeemed from profanity and reveling, John Newton from slave-dealing to proclaim an uplifted saviour. A Bunyan and a Newton may be redeemed from among men today.
Join us again next time as Clive Nash continues to read from the book Christ's Object Lessons, written by Ellen G. White. hope you enjoy the short presentation of how God led His people after the Reformation from lineagejourney.com. Stephen Haskell was born in the year 1833 in Oakham, Massachusetts, and would go on to have a huge impact on the world church. He was converted at the age of 15, and a few years later, he would marry his first wife, Mary. At the age of 19, he heard the message of Jesus' soon return and started to tell everyone about this. One day, while he was talking to a friend, he was encouraged that he should start preaching himself. At the time, he was a professional soap maker, but he started to preach and was known as being able to comprise sound, logical, and powerful sermons. In 1853, he attended a camp meeting in Winstead, Connecticut, after which he decided to travel through Canada. On his way, he stopped in Springfield, Massachusetts, where he met William Saxby, a tinsmith, who introduced him to the Sabbath. Despite being initially opposed to it, he listened to him, and after studying it out, he realized that it was biblical and committed to keeping it. A visit later on with Joseph Bates would further solidify this decision that he had made. By now he was living here in South Lancaster and was active in ministering to the believers in the area, keeping accurate records of the Sabbath schools, churches and members. In 1868, he handed a copy of this report to James White. He showed J.H. Wagner and J.N. Andrews and so impressed were they by his abilities that they ordained him as a minister, formed a New England conference and appointed him as the first president. He was 37 years old at the time. Another initiative that he started during his time here in South Lancaster was the Vigilant Missionary Society. They started by writing letters of encouragement, lending books and papers, and praying for people. Over time, this small society would grow and flourish until it became the ABC, or Adventist Book Center, as we know it today. S.N. Haskell was a decisive and organized leader and served as the president here in New England, whilst also being president in California and president of the main conference for a time as well. While he was president here in New England, he saw the forming of the South Lancaster Academy, which would go on to become the Atlantic Union College. Standing behind me is Founders Hall, built in 1884, the oldest original Adventist school building. Stephen Haskell would be instrumental in the start of the work in Australia and New Zealand, spending 13 months there. Whilst he was away traveling, his wife Mary would stay at home. She was a committed Christian and bore her physical pain with patience. Later on, she and Stephen would move here to California where she is buried. 
writing to Ellen White, Stephen said, I loved her and she loved me in capital letters, as if to emphasize the point. The Lord would provide another wife for Stephen, Hetty Heard. She was a pioneering type of woman whom he had met several times and was an active missionary having spent time in England, Africa, and California. They would get married in Australia in 1897 and would go on to start a training school in New York City before later moving to California where they were instrumental in the start of the health work here. Later on, they would move to Nashville, Tennessee, and it was whilst there that they heard the sad news that Ellen White had passed away. Essen Haskell had previously been asked to share the message at her funeral and delivered a message of hope and triumph. As he reached his final years, he once commented to his wife that he was frustrated that he couldn't do more in life. She told him that whereas he used to travel and preach, now his printed sermons went to places that he never could. He lies buried here in California next to his first wife, Mary, because he told the brethren that when he died, to bury him next to whichever wife was closest. Years earlier at his ordination, James White had told him, always look to God rather than man for direction in your work. May we do the same, to look to God rather than our fellow man for our directions in God's work. For more episodes in the series, visit lineagejourney.com.